Hello and welcome to The Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's attempt to study for his comprehensive exams. And today, even though it's not super late, it feels really, really late to me. I feel really tired and, and quite stressed. Tomorrow I have an important meeting with one of my advisors, and I just have that vague and kind of dreadful sense that when I go there, I will not be measured up to scruff, that I'll do something wrong, that I'll say something wrong, that he'll mention something that uh, everybody's supposed to know, that, but somehow I will have forgotten. Like, he'll say, like, what about the blah, blah, blah act of 1875? And I will have to sit there and go, I have no idea what the blah, blah, blah act of 1875 is or why it's important. Um, that probably won't happen. It could happen, but it probably won't happen. But I'm stressed nonetheless. Uh, so I had this big idea planned for today. I was going to try to give you a bite-sized summary of my ideas about the Victorian family and the home, but I don't think I'm going to be able to do it. So I'm going to have a little bit of a smaller episode, which I will call Making of a Historian Nights. And so what we're going to talk about in Making of a Historian Nights is uh, we're going to talk about Victorian sex. We come up to a big research problem when we try to answer the question of how often Victorian people had sex. And that's that it's really hard to figure out how often people have sex. Even if you're trying to do that study today, you would bump up into some thorny methodological issues. But with the Victorians, who've been dead for like 200 years, it's even harder. One of the proxies that we have to tell how often people had sex is that thing that sex so often leads to, babies. And so we can look at how often babies are born and to whom to figure out a little bit about sex practices. From this, we can tell that the early Victorians, at least married ones, were actually pretty sex mad. They had a lot of sex and they didn't stop having sex for a long time into marriage. As we said before, the average family size of a Victorian family was six children. And there was a lot of variation to this. One in five had up to ten children. And ideas of conception in Victorian England were that women had to enjoy sex to conceive. Ideally, they had to orgasm. What's even weirder than this gigantic uh, Victorian sex romp that led to these gigantic ruddy-faced families was that sometime after 1880, the birth rates started to decline in what historians call the demographic transition. There's a bunch of debate about why the demographic transition happened. Was it condom use? Uh, vulcanized rubber became possible after 1850, and so you started to get condoms and, and, and diaphragms and stuff like that. Was this condom use spread from the educated to the uneducated? Was it uh, sexual frigidity? Was it being careful, that is, pulling out during sex? Was it that kids were suddenly much more expensive? We just don't know. What's even more mysterious is that this demographic transition seems to happen over and over and over again in societies as they start to modernize. My personal idea about why it might happen is because of declining death rates. As you have lower death rates, you don't need to have as many kids to make up for it. And don't think that the Victorians just had sex within marriage. The babies can tell us that this was not true at all. There were high rates of illegitimacy, which means babies who were born to unmarried parents. In 1850, about 7% of all births were illegitimate, a number that wouldn't be reached again until the swinging 1960s. And also there were high rates of babies born within the first eight and a half months of marriage, which means that the parents had sex before they tied the knot. 
And outside marriage, there were prostitutes for men. Men were kind of expected to have sex before marriage, and even if their wife was pregnant or nursing or, you know, indisposed somehow, to have sex with prostitutes to get out his wild urges. Um, We talked about the furor in the 1870s about the seamier side of London with W.T. Stead's bit of yellow journalism, the maiden tribute of modern Babylon, which talked about the uh, potentially gigantic and potentially fake news child sex rings of the East End of London. But most prostitutes were probably not these victims of white slavery that W.T. Stead had discovered in his romps in the, the demi-monde. Most likely there were poor women, working class women, who might fall into prostitution the same way that older married women became laundresses as a bit of life cycle employment, or to garnish wages, or because they had lost a job, or because they wanted money. And the Victorians loved to count things, as you know. And so, of course, a bunch of them counted prostitutes. The problem is is that none of these numbers seem to square up, uh, obviously, again, because it's really hard to count prostitutes. In 1839, one person counted 80,000 prostitutes in London. Obviously, this number is absolutely insane. It could not have been 80,000 prostitutes. In 1857, someone else counted 8,600, which would make the still surprisingly high, but more reasonable, one woman in 50. And this became a problem for the state, actually, especially after it was discovered that many soldiers suffered from venereal diseases. This was more understandable because soldiers actually needed permission to marry, so if they wanted to have sex or have some female companionship, often they would have to go to prostitutes. The state's response was to pass the Contagious Diseases Acts. It was first passed in 1684 and then revised a couple of times. And it gave the police the right to subject any woman that they suspected of being a prostitute to a medical examination to check them for venereal diseases. If the woman was found to have a venereal disease, she could be thrown in a hospital for up to three months for the disease to pass. Of course, this was deeply, deeply, deeply unfair. Men were not subjected to the same levels of surveillance. They were not subjected to surveillance at all. The problem of venereal disease was placed firmly on the working class women. And in fact, the repeal of the Contagious Diseases Acts was one of the first quests of modern feminism in Britain. So that's it for Making Victorian. Check back tomorrow for a nice big chunk about Victorian family and home. Uh, Thanks very much to Jonathan Lear for the wonderful intro and outro music. And thank you to Duncan Barton uh, for the logo. Uh, If you want to look at show notes, check out the website at historian.live. If you like the show, review us on iTunes, share us on social media, share us on Facebook. Like the Facebook page at Making of Historian on Facebook. And burn a votive candle in my honor. Thanks very much. I'll see you tomorrow.